Lord God, thank you so much for the rain you bless us with. Thank you, Lord, for keeping us safe and, and watching over us this past week. We ask you to continue to keep us and preserve us. And we pray for those who are traveling, those who are traveling to church, those who are traveling on the road. I think about Wes going to Bartlesville today uh, through all of this rain. I pray that you would watch over and preserve them as they travel, Lord. Bless us as we uh, dive into uh, Gnosticism today and begin this, this part of the trek through heresies. And may it, uh, may it guide us and strengthen us in what we've learned today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we're in the heresy zone. Do, 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 do. That fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man, dimension as vast as space and timeless as infinity, uh, but ground between light and shadow, between the pit of man's fears and summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is also an area we call the heresy zone. Rod Serling, what a guy. Okay, so here's some of the aims. So let me ask you, do you remember any of the aims? What are our aims for the class? As I suspected. So I will tell you what those aims are. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we'll get to that in a minute. Yes, but absolutely. So part of our aims are become familiar with the aspects of early history, of our early history, by understanding several of the major heretical movements and the moments from the first five centuries reflect on our own day and place in history. I hope you're beginning to see these heresies just, they're just like a bad disease. They just linger, you know. Or you remember the old Timex commercials? They take a licking and keep on ticking, right? Yeah, that's what these things do. They just keep showing up. Be equipped to explain to others what we believe and why it is important. And ultimately, be able to be, to be aware, to be, keep stable, and to grow... And then I always quote this passage from 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. But right before this, Peter had just said that there are unstable people who twist the writings of Paul and the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. And then Peter says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that these things happen, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so those are the aims. I actually trimmed it down a little bit to make it uh, four instead of five. Do what? So you can remember it. It's working well. <laughs> so, yes, maybe. So the plan, we've already talked about what is heresy and how to think about it. We've talked about the Ebionites, the uh, Marcion, the Docetism. Uh, that was last week. And today we begin on Gnosticism. Uh, in the future we'll be doing Montanism, Arianism, Modalism, Manicheanism, Donatists, Nestorianism, and Pelagianism. And so here we begin. Gnosticism. I just want you to know this is my favorite subject besides Jesus. Okay, so and I'll explain why here in a minute. So what we're going to do is some delineations. We're going to define Gnosticism. We will not get to this part today. I've already got the second set of slides for next week because we're going to be pretty full. I mean, this is my doctoral thesis and I worked really, really hard to trim everything down so John wouldn't accuse me of being paid by the word or something, you know. All right, so, um, but I think as you get into it, uh, you begin to see how contemporary it is, okay? Uh, just very quickly, there are really, really bad books, and you will find them out there that are about, that are Gnostic, Gnostic, modern Gnosticism. Of course, the infamous Da Vinci Code, but some of you may remember this one, the, the, the forgotten books of the Bible. Anybody remember that? In that are some Gnostic texts that's been around for 150 years. But there are also other books uh, about Gnosticism by Gnostics. Elaine Pagels and Bart Ehrman are probably two of the most contemporary, well-known. And you can see some of those here. I wouldn't recommend reading them, but it's kind of fun. Some more from Elaine Pagels. That was the infamous Gospel of Judas that uh, the National Geo in the 2000s, middle 2000s, said, all oh, this document's been found, we've translated it, it will change the face of Christianity. And nobody ever remembers it was published. <laughs> so there it is. And then um, there's also a volume called the Gnostic Bible, which has uh, all the, many of the alternative texts that Gnostics used. 
So there are some bad books out there. What's funny is that um, the Gnostic section at Barnes & Noble, just to use Barnes & Noble, was really, really small. Every so often you might see the gospel according to Mary Magdalene or something. But in the religion section, it was mostly Christianity, almost always predominantly, right? It wasn't until the, the Da Vinci Code became an overnight success and started growing in its popularity. <clears throat> I mean, this, this ran as the number one book for over 147 weeks. That was unheard of, okay? I mean, it was huge. And then I used to go to the used bookstore to see if any of these were processing into the used bookstores. That usually means that people are like, oh, that was cool, and then they get rid of it. It didn't show up for like three years, five years after it had made after it had stopped running number one. So that means it was staying in people's homes, and I was having people, it wasn't necessarily members of our church, but I was having people at our church come up and say, does Dan Brown write? Is Dan Brown right? And so I knew then I needed to write my doctoral thesis on Gnosticism. But once this became a big deal, the shelves of Gnostic material at Barnes & Noble, just as an illustration, went from like three books to three full shelves packed from one end to the other, okay? And if you go back there now, you'll notice that there's very little. It just kind of came and went, but you'll still see them if you're paying attention. You'll see those things. So there are other books. There are good books out there on Gnosticism. If you are interested, St. Irenaeus wrote five volumes, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but wrote five volumes. That was 2nd century A.D. against the Gnostics, and I'll explain something about that in a minute. Uh, there was a guy who's dead now. His name is Philip Lee, who was a Canadian Presbyterian. He's not in the PCA, but uh, I'm not sure which particular Presbyterian stream he was part of. But his book was called Against the Protestant Gnostics. That was written in the 1990s. It's an Oxford Press public, published book. It's a really good book. When I got done writing my thesis and got it published as a book, I sent it to him, and he said that's exactly what I was saying in my book. So he, I got really high praise from him, and then he died. And so, but that's a, I'm not sure if there's a cause and effect there or if it's just correlation. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I still have the email. Yeah. So be careful. But against the Protestant Gnostics, really, really insightful. There was a guy in the 1940s named Hans Jonas, which I'll have his book up here in a minute, called The Gnostic Religion. Very helpful. There's many others. Harold Bloom did one on American religion, and that was... And he calls himself a Gnostic, and, that, and he's Jewish, but he calls himself a Gnostic. And that was intriguing because he talks about Mormonism, Southern Baptists, that was interesting, and a couple of others, some specific trends in some of those. It was really intriguing. But N.T. Wright wrote a book called Judas and the Gospel of Jesus. He was actually responding to the furor that this supposedly was creating. So he was, he's writing about it. I'll quote him in a minute. Uh, but that's a very simple book, and then, of course, my book itself. So there's my doctoral thesis, uh, Facing Neo-Gnostic Trends in a Small PCA Congregation in West Texas. That was my doctoral thesis right there, So, if you're interested. So that's why this is a big deal to me, and as I said the other day, when you do a PhD, you live with it the rest of your life. It's all you ever see. It's all I ever see, you know, I'm, you know in, in the news and social events that are going on, I just see all kinds of Gnostic trends, and even in, in North American Christianity. And I'll get into some of those in a minute. So let's do some delineations. As Moose just mentioned a minute ago, most of the various heresies are answering our Lord's question, who do you say that I am? And that way they answer that question will shape how they view many other topics, creation, the physical, God, Scripture, salvation, suffering, good and evil, and so forth. So how they answer that question will really shape everything else. And then remember the spider web of connections between what is said about Jesus and the host of other subjects. Just keep the spider web in mind if that helps you. It helps me. And so, Also you'll notice, and you'll see this with Gnosticism especially, but many of the heretical distinctives are like tributary rivers that flow into and out of one another. Gnosticism absorbed several. Um, you'll hear Marcionitism, you'll hear do uh, Docetism, you'll hear uh, Platonism, which is not a heresy, but it's a philosophy, but Platonism and other things inside of Gnosticism. But it's really interesting how it's kind of a catch-all and absorbs a lot of these different heresies. 
And then as you move to other heresies, you start going, but that sounds like Gnosticism, which sounds like Marcionitism. Yes. That's the point, is they, inter, they just interflow. So keep that in mind, okay? Any questions up to this point? All right. Hold on, because this is like riding a bucking bronc. Dun, 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 dun. There is no single bandito. It's a whole gang of desperados riding hard. So there was no one person who was the originator of Gnosticism. Valentinius and several others will be mentioned in early church history, but they're just one of many. Okay, so that's why I put them up there as a whole gang of desperados riding hard. But also, there's no single posse. There's no denomination. There's no just one little group. I mean, this, this thing, especially this one, uh, adapted and changed and morphed and moved and flowed in and out of different groups and Christian groups specifically. Gnostics held so many different views that St. Irenaeus in the 2nd century had to write five volumes in a day when there's no word processor, so he wrote by hand. Have you ever tried to write a volume by hand? I mean, that's a lot of time. But it was so many views that he wrote, he had to write five volumes to cover as much as he could what, what was going on there. Uh, to ta tackle the multiple aspects and transmutation. So if you feel a little confused, it's okay because it, it, like I said, it just morphed and changed in so many different ways and different aspects of it. So much so that a gal named uh, Karen King wrote a book that's published by Princeton that actually debunks the idea that there was any one Gnosticism, but that there, we should call it from now on Gnosticisms, plural. And that's probably a good way to put it. And of course, in all seriousness, a great resource for you would be my book, Gnostic Trends in the Local Church, and that's what it looks like. Uh, and that's actually my doctoral thesis, but I changed it a little bit so it'd be for popular reading. So, All right, so let's talk about the word itself because we kind of do some defining here. This is the Greek word gnosis, so the G is a, is a soft G and it almost sounds silent, so, and that's an N. Gnosis, and that's how it's transliterated, gnosis, and it just means knowledge. Um, it's one of the very common words in the Greek New Testament for knowing. It's never used, it's used in a bad way one time. Uh, at the end of second, uh, at the end of First Timothy, when he says, uh, "Don't be, don't be uh, fooled by science, so-called, or knowledge, so-called," that's the one time he. The word is actually used in that derisive way. But it's a very common word throughout the Greek New Testament for knowing. And it's a good word that got co-opted into a bad use, if you want to put it that way. Okay? So gnosis just simply means knowing, knowledge. All right? So let me give you some summary thoughts before we wade in. The first one is from N.T. Wright. I think he's got this down correctly. The Gnostics were the cultural conservatives sticking with the kind of religion that everyone already knew. The whole plethora of deities, all of the anti-physical, all of the secret knowledge kind of approach. Think about the mystery religions in Rome at the time and so forth. I think he's right. I think it was very, so familiar. It felt like normal to pagans because it was talking their kind of talk. You've got plenty of deities. You've got uh, this whole war going on with deities. You've got this and that. It just sounds like the Iliad, you know, things like that. And so I think he's right. I think that's the way to put it is that the Gnostics were really the cultural conservatives of their day because they were sticking to that kind of religion that was familiar and comfortable for everyone. This goes back to what I've been saying all along, that most of the heretics were answering the question of Jesus, but who do you say that I am, from within their context, within their mental, and, uh, up, their mental framework and their upbringing. They answered it from what was comfortable to them. And so Gnosticism fits in very well in that regard. And by the way, if you have any questions or need clarification, just raise your hand and let's go for it. Gnosticism is, to put it simply, 
anti-cosmic dualism. Here I'm quoting or, or I'm echoing Hans Jonas's book, The Gnostic Religion. What that means is, what is so break it down for me. What is anti-cosmic? Against the world. Now, what's part of the world? Yeah, the physical. What else is part of the world? Physical, think of physical, think of other things. What else is part of the world? How about time? Time is, is part of creation, right? We're all, we run, I mean, Genesis 1 tells you time is part of creation. The first day was good, you know, it was good. Second day, third day, time. Time is part of creation. What else would be part of, of the world, the physical, time, creation? Is it too early in the morning for you? Well, our bodies, you're talking about the physical, so the body, we'll get into that in a minute, but that's exactly right. How about history? Is history, because it's time, is that part of creation? So when it's anti-cosmic, it means anti-history, anti-physical, anti-time, anti-what, you just put them all in there. Anti-cosmic dualism. What's dualism? Right, dual is two. So it's dualism. It's not. It's not. It's not a, a diesel truck. Okay. It's not a dually. All right. It's a joke. So dualism is almost always, and you'll run across this. It's the, the New Testament sounds dualistic when Paul starts talking about uh, the fruit of the spirit and the works of the flesh. And many people hear that and they think, "Oh, that's dualism. Body bad, spirit good." Right. But that's not the kind of dualism Paul is actually involved uh, talking about. But that's normal dualism, is that concept right there. Body bad, spirit good. And by body, you mean anything physical. But body bad, spirit good. Does any of this sound contemporary already? Okay, I see head nods. Okay, for you who are listening, I see head nods. Okay, there you go. So there are head nods, that's good. Body bad, spirit good, that's dualism. So Gnosticism is anti-cosmic dualism. It's against time, space, history. It's against bodies, the physical, and so forth. In fact, you will hear it in language, um, more contemporary language, is quit looking on the outside. The real me is on the inside. Body bad, spirit good. Doesn't matter what I do with the body, that's just the external. All that matters is the real me on the inside. Does that sound contemporary? You heard that? Yes. Gnosticism is everywhere. So I'm not hallucinating. All right, so let's move on. So any questions about any of that that I brought up already? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Yes, that's not me, yes. But I also think about Carl Jung. Where's Bill? Where's Bill Ruby? Oh, well. But Carl Jung, big psychologist. If you, so, this, so Jordan Peterson is a big Jung fan. I cannot help but hear the Gnosticism in Jordan Peterson because he's a big Jung fan. But that whole idea that you need to just go, I just need to go find myself. Honey, I need a divorce so I can go find myself. Hello? Right? Okay. So that's, yes, very good. You're tracking with me. Awesome. All right, so Hans Jonas uh, broke down his definitions of Gnosticism by looking at several categories, theology, cosmology, anthropology, eschatology, morality, and that works. I mean, I did something very similar in my doctoral thesis, so let's just work through them, and then you ask questions as we go along if you need clarification. So Hans Jonas pointed out in theology that for Gnosticism and theology, the deity is absolutely transmundane. Trans means above the mundane. What is mundane? It's the ordinary, but it's actually the Latin word for earthly. Above or beyond earthly, okay? It's nature alien to that of the universe, which it neither created nor governs, and to which it is the complete antithesis. Okay, I think we're okay with that, actually. Right? In many ways, Yahweh is transmundane in the sense that he's not bound by time, space, and history. We have a whole, all of our systematic theologies say those things. 
It's where they end up going with that. The world is the work of lowly powers, which though they immediately be descended from him, do not know the true God and obstruct the knowledge of him in the cosmos over which they rule. And so the creation is made by lesser deities who don't know God, the true God, and want to obstruct any way to get to him, in a sense, right? So now we're moving into multiple levels of gods. And if you're a good Greek and a good Roman, you're going, yeah, I hear you. You see what I'm saying? The cultural conservatism, so to speak, right? All right. And so that's the idea, is that all creation then is made by a lesser deity and therefore it's already faulty. A lesser deity who's got some, uh, uh, some negativism going on. All right? So from the very beginning then, the creation was not good, not very good, according to Gnostics. Yes? Yeah, that's a good question. Evolutionists. Uh, I remember having a friend who is a, I believe is, truly believe is a Christian, but he holds to some form of theistic evolution. And I had to say to him, I said, he's not in the PCA. And I said to him, I said, well, if you do that, you need to back up and start out with how was the creation good, very good from the beginning, because according to evolution, it's all been red and tooth and claw from the very beginning. Right? It's all been survival of the fittest from the very beginning. That's evil. Oh, he's British. Oh, Mikey, I hadn't thought of that. Right? And so he has to be pushed back. But yes, that's exactly what I would say. There's a that trend there. Yes. Yeah, so like I said, it morphs quite a bit, but this is classic Gnosticism here, okay? And so trying to take this and then moving to the contemporary, you see certain things where they go together. But you're right, most, Christ, most Christians, but I actually, I actually had an office partner who went to one of our colleges for night school as a PCA, church, as a PCA college in a certain state who came back from class. He didn't go to church, but he came back from class and he says, oh, I heard the best thing ever yesterday. It really helped me. I said, really, what's that? That the God of the Old Testament is evil and the God of the New Testament is good and love and Jesus and all that stuff. And I was like, ah! So, yes. So it does crop up. I mean, it actually shows up on occasion. But you're right that as Christians, that if we have that trend, we wouldn't necessarily, dis- we wouldn't necessarily agree with this part. But that was, this is classic Gnosticism. Okay? And so because of that, it moves on. Uh, cosmology, the universe. The universe, the domain of the archons. Those are the lower deities, the powers. That's what that Greek word means, the leaders, the powers. Talking about the lesser deities. The universe, the domain of the archons, is like a vast prison whose innermost dungeon is the earth, the scene of man's life. These lesser divine beings had their own realms and they ruled with an iron fist by way of of the law of nature, quote, which includes the institution and enforcement of the Mosaic law. And it aims at, quote, the enslavement of man. Each archon then bars the passage of the human soul from ascending back to God after death. So if Yahweh is a lesser deity, and he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's the lesser deity, and he he created things in rebellion to the true God, then you, you see where this is already going, you see the connection how they would come to talk about the Mosaic Law this way. Does it make sense? Does it make sense? Am I going too fast? Okay, well, let's just keep going. Yes. 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 There's the true God, and then there's these lesser deities, and God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, Christ, the Christi, early Christian version of Gnosticism would have said the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a bad God. Does that sound like, anybody remember Marcion? Does anybody remember when we talked about Marcionitism? That's what Marcion said. So now you start to see how these start pulling in together. Okay? All right, so you've got to keep that in mind that that's the notion that there's a true God out there who is unknown and unknowable, really. Um, 
and there are all these lesser deities in between that are actually uh, like, uh, like a prison security guard system, right? You have to go through all these different gates if you ever want to get to the true God, but they all have the combination and you don't, and, and they're blocking your way and so forth. And, and Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be, that, would be one of those gods. Yes, yes, yes. Harold Bloom in his book, American Religion, calls Mormonism uh, the finest version of Gnosticism ever created, and it's all American. He spends three whole chapters on Mormonism, praising it and going through all of this. Yeah. Good, good call. That's what Wes would say, too, if Wes was here, because he was in Utah for quite a while, and he would say the same thing. And so uh, Hans Jonas goes on to say that the Gnostic God is not merely extra-mundane, super-mundane, but is, in, is ultimately, uh, in his meaning, his ultimate meaning is contra-mundane. He is against the world. And so now you start, it feels like paganism, because the gods were often hostile to humans and hostile to creation and so forth. If you ever go through the Iliad, you have to try to schmooze them to be on your side and and they love to destroy people and things and all that stuff. So they were also contra-mundane. Okay? So that was cosmology, anthropology. So humankind is made up of the mundane and extra-mundane. Body and soul are physical. So they would have a tripartite view of humans. Body, soul, spirit. Body and soul are physical, but the pneuma or the spirit is, quote, a portion of the divine substance. A portion of the divine substance from beyond which has fallen into the world. And the archons created man from the express purpose of keeping it, the spirit, the divine substance, uh, captive here. The pneuma, is, the spirit, is immersed in soul and flesh and is unconscious of itself, benumbed, asleep, intoxicated by the poison of the world. In brief, it is ignorant. Its awakening and liberation is affected through gnosis, through knowledge. Now just parse that out just a minute. Have you heard any of this even recently? Well, you know, all of us have a divine spark. There's a little piece of God living in all of us or something like that, right? Just go, if you don't believe me, just go watch Disney for crying out loud, right? I mean, but that's common folk religion of the 21st century North America. What else do you notice as you go through all that? What else do you notice? Anything else that sounds familiar? If the body and soul are physical and they were created to keep captive the pneuma, does that sound familiar? That's very Platonistic, by the way. It's Plato's, the body is the prison house of the soul, okay? And so even, unfortunately, John Calvin momentarily fails in his institutes and says that, and then he comes back and, and says, but, you know, actually, we mean this and this and this, and he moves on, okay? So that was good. I appreciate Calvin doing that. But I run across that a lot. I mean, Jars of Clay did a song not long ago, or several years back about, you do whatever you want you to this body. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that I'm free to go be with God. What? Say what? Okay. So the, when we start, and I've heard, I've heard pre, Catholic priests and Protestant ministers at funerals. It's the it's the the place you will see most of the Gnosticism, that's the Gnostic trends in America, have said things like, "Look, this isn't Joe Bob. Joe Bob has already gone to be with the Lord. This is just his outside container. Just throw it in the dirt and quit mourning." No, that's part of Joe Bob. If the scriptures are correct. Does that make sense? I mean, there it is. That whole idea that the body is the prison house. So when you need to be set free. Well, now what else does that sound like? Does it sound like anything that has social issues going on right now in North America? Anybody? You want me to turn off the microphone so you can speak freely? How about like, I'm really a girl on the inside. And so I need to make my body fit who I really am. That's Gnosticism. The body is malleable. It doesn't matter. All that matters is 
me on the inside. That's Gnosticism. Yes. Yes, abortion. Oh, this, it justifies tons of stuff. Euthanasia, all that stuff. Very good. All right. Well, let's move on. You ready to move on? You all look really eager. All right. <laughs> eschatology. What is eschatology? Anybody know what that means? Yeah, final things or end of things. So the goal of Gnostic striving is the release of the inner man from the bonds of the world and his return to his native realm of light. The necessary condition for this is that he knows, there's Gnosticism, knows about the transmundane God and about himself, that he's a part of God, and that is about the divine origin as well as his present situation and accordingly also about the nature of the world which determines this situation. The way of knowledge is by sacramental and magical preparations for its future ascent, secret names and formulas. Anybody ever gotten into it with Madonna and the Kabbalah? Remember the rock singer Madonna? Does, I mean, she's my age almost, right? So nobody remembers us old people, right? But, but she, had, she got into to Kabbalah, which is a Jewish Gnosticism. All right, and even has some tattoos that have secret names on them. Okay, it's a very pop thing. It was a big pop thing in the middle 2000s and the early 2010s. Kabbalah was a lot of rock stars got into it. That's the same kind of thing. The secret names and formulas that unlock the blockade and helps one become reunited with the divine substance. And so, like Kabbalah, it's actually the 72 names of God. anybody ever seen that book at Barnes and Noble by any chance? The 72 names of God, there's a little booklet that used to float around. And so you learn the secret power behind using that name. What does that sound like? Learning the secret power so that you can... Oh, my goodness, Alan. Oh, yes. That's right. Very interesting. All right, so I want to be free of this body and go back to being fully who I am, which is part of the divinity. That's the eschatology. Okay? And all of this is keeping me from it. It sounds like Hinduism too, yeah. Yeah. Alright, so morality. In this life, the pneumatics, that's what they called themselves, pneumatics, spiritual, the really spiritual. So the pneumatics, as the possessors of gnosis, knowledge, called themselves, they're set apart from the great mass of mankind. They actually had a three-tier view of humankind. There's the common unbeliever, then there's the, the that's, which is everybody else, and then there's the normal Christians. They're the really ignorant believers. They don't know the truth. And then there's us, the ones who are really in the know. Okay, So they looked at humankind at three tiers. And I find that interesting. So I'm always, I start breaking out hives when I hear within Christian circles, you know, well, there's the carnal Christian, and then there's the really spiritual Christian, or something like that, right? I mean, I start breaking out hives. It's the same setup with Gnosticism in that regard. So the immediate or immediate illumination not only makes the individual sovereign, the individual sovereign in the sphere of knowledge, but also determines the sphere of action. Generally speaking, the pneumatics, the pneumatic morality is determined by hostility toward the world and contempt of all the mundane ties. And so, if, if, um, if I'm the really spiritually elite and I am part of this anti-cosmic, this anti-mundane God in some way, then my morality is going to be determined by this hostility toward the world. Now, where would that might go? Where are some two places maybe that might go? Immorality, the way that people live. Huh? Yeah, outright antinomianism or libertinism. Okay, that's one way. What about the other way? Especially if you feel like that the world is hostile to you too and so forth. What would be the other way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So severe asceticism. Right? So both of those show up. Right? They're, they're, they're always, they're just flip sides of the same coin, by the way. Libertinism and asceticism are flip sides of the same coin in that sense. Yeah, yeah, 
for for the for the physical. Yeah, because it's all dirty. It's just it's below me, and it's below God, the true God. Right, because the God who created them is bad. Or is less than good. Because there's the really good God who's above and beyond him. Right, 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 right. So the nomadic morality normally went in one of two directions. It was either the ascetic or the libertine. So how would Gnosticism then, think about all of this, how would Gnosticism then perceive Jesus? I'm sorry? Could be one of the lesser gods who came into the knowledge and is showing us knowledge, right? Showing us, enlightening us. That's all that that's about. What else? Yes. Absolutely. So it would affect the way that the resurrection was viewed, for example. The crucifixion was meaningless. It was... It was, him, it, was, it was him escaping the prison house of the soul, the body. And so the resurrection was not wanted. Very interesting in the, wherever it's at in here, where is it? Oh, here it is. In the Gospel of Judas, uh, Bart Ehrman writes some of the articles. He points out that in the Gospel of Judas, the resurrection is nowhere in there. Why would Jesus want to be resurrected? The body is bad. Spirit, good. It changes the whole way you look at Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, what else might they think about Jesus? Or what would they have said possibly? Ooh, yeah. So is he really all good? Right. So that might be why they say the crucifixion was good because that's when he then moved into the higher realm. Yeah. Okay. Isn't this exciting? So what would be their understanding then of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or of Yahweh? We've already kind of said it, but what would be their understanding then? Now, lesser God? Not good, okay? Or less than good. If not, you know, some, of them, some of them said less than good, some of them said not good, outright evil, okay? Yeah, good, right. Um, therefore, how would they see the Hebrew Scriptures? If that's the way they feel about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then how would they see the Hebrew Scriptures? I'm sorry, what? Not inerrant. What else? Not even important. And authored by whom? Yeah, lesser gods would have inspired Moses and others, and so they're all less than good at the least, less than good if not outright bad. Very good, that's exactly right. And there's more you could put in there and we'll put in some of those, some more things next week in that regard. But this is what Michael Philiber said in his book, Gnostic Trends in the Local Church. It's, you know it's how weird it is to quote yourself? But Gnostic salvation also means that if God is contramundane, if he is against the creation, and if the cosmos and the created realm are a main part of the problem, then they must be escaped altogether. So that, remember that. That's part of the notion is we need to get outside of history, outside of history, outside of time, outside of the physical, outside of creation, and so forth. We need to move beyond that. That's salvation. And the way to do that is knowing the combination code to get through all the prison jailers so you can finally get back to where you belong, to where you're one with God. Now that sounds almost like Hinduism, maybe a little bit, or Buddhism, something like that, right? Because you can finally be one again with the true God. Hold that thought, because I'm going to come to that. I think I'm coming to that in a minute. If not, then I will say something about it before we go on. But that's a great question. So uh, Eugene Peterson, the, the, the fellow who put together the 
paraphrastic translation of the Bible called The Message. He said this in a book he wrote called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. Gnosticism is a virus in the bloodstream of religion and keeps resurfacing every generation or so advertised as brand new, replete with a, brand, with a new brand name. On examination, though, it turns out to be the same old thing but with a new public relations agency. <laughs> Gnosticism offers us spirituality without the inconvenience of creation. Gnosticism offers us spirituality without the inconvenience of sin or morality. The problem is not sin if you're a Gnostic. The problem is ignorance. So you just need more education to become more enlightened. Does any of this sound familiar? Okay. Very interesting. R.J. Rushton, he wrote a book called, uh, uh, back in the 60s, wrote a book on uh, public education in America, the history of it. He goes clear back to Horace Mann and before, and you see the Unitarianism of many of those that are looking at education as public education that they wanted to present as a form of salvation. They use religious language, salvation language, church language for the, for the school and the school system. It's really interesting. So Gnosticism, okay, I already read that one. Um, Gnosticism offers a spirituality without the inconvenience of people we don't like <laughs> or who aren't our kind. And maybe most attractive of all, Gnosticism offers us spirituality without God, at least any God other than the spark of divinity I sense within me. I think that's a great way to put it, which goes then to uh, Randy's question because if, I, if the spark of divinity is in me, and that's what I'm really worshiping in a sense or, or following is the spark of divinity in me, then who, where is the source of authority at that point? Me, in the end, right? And so what happens is that uh, in Gnosticism, they created out of whole cloth, out of the twilight zone, if you will, whole books like the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, or the Gospel of Judas, or whatever. They created all these things where they retell the story all the way through from a Gnostic perspective, a Jesus who doesn't want to be physical, and so forth. And so they create their own sources of authority, but in the end, they become and are their own authority. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Right. 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 And that's a problem. It is a problem. So when I, like in my book, when I put down Gnostic trends in the local church, it's not full-blown Gnosticism that you see, it's trends. So I would put something like that probably in the trend category that leans, leans in that direction. And there are easy, not easy, there are ways that we take care of that, okay? But it is, all these, those various things are rampant. But there are trends. Um, so I did a survey of three churches, our church in Midland. They were all three conservative. One was a conservative Anglican church, and one was a conservative Baptist church. So I'm going to give you an example. So I went through the survey, and I hate surveys because, as my dad used to say, figures lie and liars figure, right? I even said that when I was defending my doctoral thesis. They said, what's the weakest part of your, your thesis? Uh, the survey, you know, because you can cook it any way you want to, but but I went through and asked these questions, and, and what was interesting was that the big question I asked that really highlighted things for me was I said, what's more important, that Jesus died outside of Jerusalem 30 A.D. or 33 A.D., or that uh, I have a personal relationship with God? Well, the great news was 50% of them, all told, 50% of them said, without the historical action of Jesus, God incarnate, I cannot have a personal relationship with God. Many of the other 50%, and I mean many, said that's history. It doesn't mean anything. All that matters is that I have a personal relationship. That's a Gnostic trend because it's anti-history, right? And so what it means is I can have this relationship with God and I don't really even need Jesus. I can do it 
you know, whatever other way. So that's an example of that trend. And that's what really, re one of the things that really alarmed me, and I was surprised, you know, that, that three very conservative churches, that there were that many people in the end. By the way, I'll tell you that our church in Midland, Texas, it was not that bad. It was like 95% got it right, so it was awesome. So I'd done my job, so anyway. So that's the beginning. That, most of that's classic Gnosticism, and we're going to move further with this next week. Uh, but um, as you think about it, and there's more I could say to it, um, but I've given you enough that you could actually just walk out right now and you could start going, oh, now I see why Mike Philibert's paranoid. He sees Gnosticism everywhere. You know, because all these things, different statements, especially the body, bad, spirit, good, that's important but also the anti-historical, the anti-cosmic dualism, the anti-historical, anti-limitation, not satisfied with the fact that I'm a creature, those things. That comes up really a lot too, okay? Especially the anti-history, which I find it interesting that most evangelicals in North America despise church history. They, they kind of like it a little bit, but they don't want to get into it very deep because that's just book learning. Just get me Jesus. Right? It's like, wait, dude, that's our history. And we need to learn from that history. So Henry Ford is, is remember Henry Ford is popularly quoted. There's one line he's remembered for. What's the, what's the line about history? Huh? Yes, history is bunk. Good job, Phil. Right? Now that's a good Americanism. Because as Americans, we don't like history very much, unless you like to read David McCullough. Now, then you must like history. All right? But that's part of our problem now, is that we don't have much of an attachment to our history so we don't remember all these things that we've done as a nation before and how they failed, how they succeeded, and all that stuff. We've lost our historical roots, but that's an example. Yes? Oh, yes. So now we're back to Gnostic morality of libertinism Right? I want to be my own authority. Talking to Randy here. I want to be my own authority because I don't want any limits. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's what Moose would say too. And he said several times already. But you're exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you could almost say that Satan was, the, the serpent in the garden was the original Gnostic. Has God really said? Are you sure? Are you sure that he wants your best interest? Is it possible that maybe he's a little selfish? Like, yep. You know what I'm saying? So he's like maybe the first Gnostic. I love the book of Jude, by the way, and I hope it'll come, I'll come back and preach a series on it again. Just, it was just a two-part, three-part series on Jude because I think Jude is actually dealing specifically with early Gnostics in that book. In that 25, those 25 verses. Okay, so if you ever want something to read to kind of guide you, then that's a good place to go. Anybody else? Yes, Cindy. Oh, uh, like, uh, so if you read my, my book, it's very simple stuff. We do it. Very physical. We're pro-sacrament. That's a very physical creation thing, right? baptism, the Lord's Supper, we're all in that. We physically engage in worship. That's intentional because, you know, you throw your body into your begging, your, your posture into your praying. You've heard me say that before. That's very anti-Gnostic. Um, I mean, what we do in our worship service is, is part of the remedy. Well, no, that's just the beginning. Yeah, but the other part would be to quit to, to make sure you don't fall into the trap of despising the body. Well, it's part of, it's part of the fall and all those other things. It's part of our being creatures, right? That's Ecclesiastes. But at the same time, so, you know, a woman who's, a girl who's cutting herself is, it hates herself. She hates her body. And she thinks God must too, if she's a Christian. She thinks God must too, or that God hates her because he gave her this body. It's gospel news to say, no, God loves your body. So much so, he took on the very same flesh and blood to save you, body and soul. That's a very anti-Gnostic statement. And that, we need to be saying that a lot. 
because it's part of the remedy to what's going on in the larger social perspective. Seeing how this is Pride Month, I think I can say it, and hopefully I won't get shot, right? But this is, we have something to say to the world without being mean and nasty about it. We have gospel good news. God loves your body. He made you a male. He made you a female because He's pleased with your womanhood and your manhood or your maleness and femaleness. He loves it. As an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, very much so, yeah. And so when we do the Apostles' Creed, it's very anti-Gnostic. Christ was uh, crucified under Pontius Pilate. Right? So history, boom. Right? Or the Nicene Creed, the same thing. So those are, and those things impact the, the lived out morality. Does that answer your question? Okay. There's more I got to say on it, and I want to say more. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to if you want to read five volumes of St. Irenaeus, you will get an earful. Yeah. But but there's I mean there's all kinds of deities or beings in there. And uh, yeah. One of the things I thought was interesting, I'm going to quit here in a minute, was that J. Gresham Machen in the 1920s talking about Christian liberalism and St. Irenaeus in 190 AD talking about gnosticism, both of them say the same thing when they say this. They say they use our language, but they don't mean what we mean. I thought that was really pronounced, that they both saw that. They use our words, but they don't mean what we mean. That's what I said. Machen said that in the 1920s in Christianity and liberalism, and then Irenaeus says that. And that's also something very interesting. So sometimes you have to ask, what do you mean by that? In fact, we probably should do that all the time anyway. All right, so next week, good Lord willing, uh, a few more defining concepts of Gnosticism and then on to Gnostic trends around us and we'll get into some of those things. And so if you have any questions, uh, let me know. Uh, you can, like I said, get my book or you can rob somebody who's got it or whatever you need to do, you know. And then, uh, or get N.T. Wright's book, um, Gospel, uh, Judas and the Gospel of Jesus. That's really good. Um, be a big help. Okay, any, any last questions? All right, let's pray. We thank you, our God in heaven, that you are not anti-cosmic. You're not against the world. You made it. You made us. And you made it all good, all very good. And for that, Lord, we are grateful. And you, you proved it by becoming fully human, becoming in the incarnation, your son becoming part of creation. Lord, we pray that you would help us that we would not be part of the disease, but part of the remedy. We've got gospel good news to say to our world, Lord. To say it in love, and to say it in joy, to say it um, um, with care. And so I pray that you would help us to do that. And for our own kids, and our grandkids, and our neighbors, and those who visit our church, Lord, that you would help us to be able to say those things. And folks in our neighborhood. And Lord, we pray that um, you would be with us now as we get ready to gather into the great assembly on this Pentecost Sunday, rejoicing that you, Lord Jesus, after you were ascended to heaven and crowned as King of kings and Lord of lords, you poured out your Holy Spirit upon your people. And for that, we are grateful. Prepare our hearts to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.